It's the muling of the money that's stolen that really causes a significant problem. There's cases that I've become aware of um, linking romance scams and business email compromise scams, authorized frauds, small dollar transactions aggregating to large financial institutions. And then those large transactions are then sent to Africa in one particular case to traffic people and drugs. I will tell you that kind of information, we're finally realizing that this money that's being stolen from innocent people is yes, enriching people along the way, but it's also linked to um, horrific crimes. What do scams, mules, money laundering, sex trafficking, and drug movement all have in common? And what can you do to make a difference? Scam Rangers, a podcast about the human side of fraud and the people who are on a mission to protect us. I'm your host, Ayelet Bigger-Levine, and I'm passionate about driving awareness and solving this problem. Welcome to episode nine of Scam Rangers. I'm so excited to have today's Scam Ranger join us. Today's Scam Ranger is really living the mission of fighting human crime and scams are a big part of it. Ian Mitchell is a 25-year fraud fighter and founder of The Noble, a nonprofit with a mission to unite the financial crimes industry to protect vulnerable populations and fight human crime, trafficking, scams, child exploitation, and elder abuse. Ian is also the co-founder of Mission Omega a mission-driven fraud services company that helps the financial industry enhance anti-fraud programs, defenses, and controls. So welcome to the podcast, Ian. It's so great to have you here. Thanks, Ayelet. Sorry for that long intro to everyone listening, but you know it's such a pleasure being here. And thank you for what you're doing. I just um, truly am I'm grateful for the fact that scams and just this whole fight against this, uh, this plague is, is getting the attention that it deserves and, and the fact that you're leading that with your podcast. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So first, I wanted to ask if you can tell us a little bit about The Noble. We've heard about The Noble from Julie Conroy in episode four, but... Let's double click into that a little bit. Tell me briefly about The Noble, your mission, and why you started The Noble. Well, I mean, The Noble is an organization, and I would say I'm going to start with what it's not. We are a nonprofit, and we are a small team, um, but really The Noble is uh, a network. So it's not... We don't like to view it as, as an organization. We like to view it as a people. It's, a, it's people coming together to fight human crime. It's a network of like-minded financial crime, fraud fighters, any money laundering professionals, financial services professionals, all coming together to fight and remember that there's human being, beings behind every transaction. So that's what I did. I established this in 2019. Um, as you said, I was a 20, I'm a 25-year fraud fighter. But before that, I was about almost a 20-year fraud fighter. Before I hung up my boots, I retired early from banking. I was the head of fraud at Fifth Third Bank, and I just was done with the fraud fight, balancing customer experience. And so I moved to the mountains of Tennessee, and uh, actually mountains out just outside Tennessee in, in Georgia, actually. But I moved to the mountains, just focused on music and wanted to just start my career over kind of midlife, if you will. And so uh, anyway, I met somebody named Matt Friedman, who you had on the podcast. Um, and I met Matt Friedman, and he talked to me about human trafficking, which I knew nothing about. And I realized that maybe in that, after that conversation, I could have done more. And I think that's the mission of the noble is to take people that are in some of the best positions in the world fighting money laundering and fraud and, and get them to start using the same tools and data and technology to fight, to protect vulnerable populations, to protect people and to really um, awaken 
uh, we, we awaken, we equip and deploy. We, we, the best of the best. So our mission is to awaken those. I figure there's about a hundred thousand, there's hundreds of thousands of financial crime fighters around the world that are daily showing up to file SARS and work detection alerts and do analytics. So if we can be a part of, uh, mobilizing them, I think we have a bigger army, a better army, a better skilled army to fight these evils than the bad guys or bad actors do. Um, to perpetrate them. So that, that's the whole mission behind it. And so this little nonprofit, that's what we do. And it's been an unbelievable several year journey. We, we do that through projects and initiatives. And really the whole goal is to just unite the industry. I always say fighting evil is not competitive. And so uh, just unite the industry in, in how we kind of uh, protect vulnerable people. Yeah, I think it's the opposite of competitive. It's really the advantage of getting together, collaborating to fight the real enemy, which is, you know, the criminal. So can, give me a few examples of what the Noble does with regards to scams specifically. Yeah. So if I can even piggyback on your point and then, and then maybe lead into that is the point you just made. It's interesting as fraud fighters, you know, we've had the benefit of, um, fighting fraud in consortiums and sharing information together. Uh, for whatever reason, fraud fighters have become, for those that have been around a long time, we, we've, we help each other, whether it's at conferences, we, we realize, we've realized for a long time that there is, you know, we're all under attack. And so there's been this uh, collective mute movement via data sharing, via informal connections, just to help each other in this fraud fight. And so I think we've operated in that, in a lot of respects, in the fraud fight. Um, now taking that over to other types of human crime uh, disciplines or fights, that, that's, that's kind of what it is. So, so um, what it is. So, so I think um, what's going on with scams? Well, as we all know, I mean, scams is, I'm sure every one of your, your folks, and Julie probably said it 10 times better than I'll ever say it here, but I like to describe scams as one of the biggest financial crime problems, if not the biggest financial crime problem we have in the world. And why do I think that? Well, one, we just look at the amount of money we're seeing being stolen. Um, this will single, by all estimates, this will be a bigger fraud, bigger loss dollar if liability changes to make up, be bigger than credit card fraud and identity theft. It'll be bigger, it'll be the biggest single fraud type if you allow me to group it all together that we have. And I think for that reason, that's a, you know, a horrible problem, but it's the muling of the money that's stolen that really causes a significant problem. There's cases that I've become aware of. Um, law enforcement really has shared information with me, and I've spoke about this in the past, but basically linking romance scams and business email compromise scams, authorized frauds, small dollar transactions, aggregating to large financial institutions, and then those large trans large transactions are then sent to Africa um, in one particular case to traffic people and drugs. I will tell you that kind of information, um, I think is just, we're finally realizing that this money that's being stolen from innocent people is yes, enriching people along the way, but it's also linked to um, horrific crimes. And I think that's why we, through the pandemic and all the money that was taken through the pandemic, I think we've become aware of this linkage. It's not necessarily just an isolated scam that's attacking a vulnerable person, but it is linked to other horrific activity on the other end. So what we do at The Noble around scams is we've created a roundtable. So there's a scams roundtable. We partner with organizations like Early Warning sponsored our scam roundtable last year. We have roundtables on human trafficking, scams. We try to get together and share information. Well, we have a scams roundtable. I think we've had several of those and every one last year went over time. I think at one point, one of the ones went over an hour and there are over 100 people on it sharing actively what's going on in the scam fight. Again, trying to live out that non-competitive approach 
approach. We also have different projects that we run to ignite the industry around thinking about fighting scams differently. And so there's projects with around gift cards right now. Walmart sponsored that project. And there's organizations, other organizations that are top retailers and financial institutions that are involved in this project to document how gift cards are being used um, in the scam issue. You know, we have other projects around scams. The whole goal for us on these projects is to get to basically it's like training wheels to teach us how to think about a problem differently, help us figure out how to move our anti-scam programs from nascent to advanced. And you maybe even do that before the regulators shift liability, because again, as fraud fighters, we kind of have that, uh, we kind of have that job anyway. And we'll definitely get to the point of liability and regulators in just a second and why we need to act even before liability happens. You touched on the financial loss and the amount and the size of this problem as it, or as it relates to traditional account takeover fraud or credit card fraud. There's another aspect here, which is very different from account takeover fraud, and that's the emotional toll. I know that whenever there's identity theft or account takeover fraud, of course, there is impact on the victim, the person whose account has been tampered with, but the emotional toll of being manipulated into transfer money to the scammer in the amounts that it's happening, I think is we don't grasp that yet on a, on a population level. We, we can see it on a victim by victim level and really understand the shame and the impact on the individual. But what is a collective impact of these scams and everything that's going on? I think that's something that, that we didn't grasp yet as, as, a, as a community. Well, especially as a fraud fighting community, we, we've, we've measured our focus on fighting fraud and scam is fraud. Um, we've measured our focus on fighting fraud based on different factors that we can quantify very easily, um, just where liabilities, where losses sit, right? Where there's regulatory attention and making sure that we have to file the SARS related to them. Um, and other type of factors, you know, customer friction, so customer experience. But these scam events, and all, just like all the human crime events, are interesting. And this is why we focused on human crime from the start. These are the types of crimes that fall in between the cracks of our traditional financial services constructs. And so when we start looking at the toll or the reason to focus on it, or um, you know, apart from losses and regulation, you, you mentioned one, the emotional toll. Um, and I'll talk about a couple examples that that just uh, that that have come through or that I'm aware of. The emotional toll is so significant that actually it makes great business sense to actually start looking at the, um, protecting our customers because a lot of it, it they attach the vulnerability to their financial institution. And so they feel this is a highly emotional, like all fraud is, but it's a highly emotional um, uh, interaction with the bank. And when they call and say, I've been duped, or they're trying to convince, they'd find a way out of this, get their money back with the amounts of money that are getting stolen. It's interesting to, for us as fraud fighters and fraud operations, we have to look at servicing our customers in a different way. We have to be almost empathetic. We need to start looking at more of our role as less as fighting the bad actors and deciding, is this a fraudster or not a fraudster? But it really is almost helping them emotionally through a very traumatic experience. I think that's absolutely critical because these are people being duped. Um, and I, I, we could talk forever on who's being duped, but, but it's interesting to me. These are at all levels. Let's talk about that for a second, because you and I had discussed previously and talked about the fact that there are still fraud executives out there that believe that this happens to people who are less savvy or have lower IQ. And it's not the case. I can share my story. I almost fell victim to a scam. I had a lot of hope. It was my flight got canceled and I wanted help from the airline and a scammer reached out to me and they 
took me down this journey and I didn't eventually completely fall for the scam because I did see, you know, the request for crypto identification. And then I saw the request for remote access tools, but I did ignore a lot of red flags on the way. Now I consider myself an expert on this topic and I almost fell for it. So I am wondering what needs to happen to convince fraud executives that this can happen to them too. It could happen to anyone. It can happen to their families. It's not a, a, a matter of IQ or tech savviness. It's a matter of being off guard for one moment. What do you think we can do to advocate for that? Well, I mean, uh, one of the first problems is most fraud professionals that I know of are data-driven. I think a lot of most bankers at this point are data-driven. And I think, um, you know, in our in our Noble Roundtable, we did a survey of how many banks are tracking, um, this is third quarter, fourth quarter last year, tracking scams, and it was under 50%. And, and when you start talking about tracking scams, a lot of them are just tracking scams as one bucket versus even the types of scams. And so one of the things I think that we have run the risk of, or the problem is, is we haven't been quantifying for years the impact that scam claims have come into our disputes teams. Um, we haven't been quantifying or, or aggregating them into our call centers that when, when somebody claims scams. We just know that there's no liability and we give them three strikes, you're out. It's been our policy for a long time for most banks. So I think one of the things that I find when I interact with fraud fighters, especially ones that have been doing this for a while, you know, like myself and, and others, and is, is we have to start viewing this fraud problem through a different lens. You know, at this point, our main tactic to prevent scams which largely I think everyone has been agreeing that business email compromises a scam is we train our way out of it. We try to put, you know, fancy web graphics and info information out on our web portals and partner with different organizations to give them slick virtual training, or we, you know, have conversations with them, one-off conversations when an event happens so it doesn't happen again. But that's been our approach for, for over a decade. And I think what we're finding is, is that um, it's not a matter of education level or smarts. As you're saying, as you said, I mean, these are happening. Scams are attacking all levels of education, all demographics of people, um, and they are getting more sophisticated using technology. And we can talk about, you know, doctors that I've been talking to, chief risk officers, heads of financial crime, the noble. Um, we, we're all getting targeted. I I've been targeted. I've fell victim. We're all at this point, all vulnerable. And I think that's one of the biggest messages I'm sure that's been reinforced during your, your conversations. And I'll continue to reinforce but we have to think about the problem differently. I, I was speaking at a, at a financial uh, big fraud conference and I was talking in a room, um, 17 of the top fraud executives were in the room, largest financial institutions around the world actually. And they started talking about um, this term. They said, you can't basically, they, you know, I always hesitate saying this, but you can't train stupid. You can't train your way. You, you can't, your training's not working. And I, I really started realizing that, you know, no fault of them, um, but I started realizing that we really have to take a mindset shift when it comes to scam as fraud and financial crime fighters, recognizing that this is the biggest fraud problem we have. And so we have to now deploy all the tools in our tool belt, not just training, because we know that you can't train your way out of account takeover. You can't train your way out of identity theft. You can't train your way out of all these things. So we have to start getting more preventative through policies and all kinds of things, but then detection has to be a part of it and how we resolve, how we resolute and act, putting the right processes, process around resolution. We have to bring the strength of our whole anti-fraud program to this, to this, and we need our vendors, our technology providers to start innovating around this. So I do think that there's a shift that's happening. Um, my conversations around scams two years ago 
when we were advocating for this at the Noble versus right now are completely different. And I'm, I know that there's a lot of folks that are listening to this that, that know everything I'm saying right now and, and believe in it and are doing something about it. But I think that we still have yet to make sure that we fight against, for those especially have been doing this a long time, fight against our default posture of this isn't our problem. This isn't our liability. This isn't like that's the thing we have to fight when we think about the scam problem and start looking at this as it's fraud first and there's victim second and there is an ROI, which I think we forget. There is an ROI. So I wanted to ask you, how can we help the fraud fighters convince their leadership to invest in this problem? You mentioned, you know, this is a huge part of fraud and we need to take action even before there's liability. What are some good arguments for the fraud executives when they talk to their leadership that they can make about ROI, about customer lifetime value? Yeah. Well, one of the first things that I'm aware of is that recently the top CEOs of all the major banks were in front of the Senate and had a conversation and you had Jamie Dimon and the top CEOs literally talking about authorized fraud. And if you, anybody who listened to this, I was floored by the level of detail that they knew about scams and liability and controls. I mean, I was floored. So to me, I feel like the great news is um, there's already an executive level awareness. And for those that aren't talking about it, I think that's the first thing is, is just making sure that there's an understanding across all of the top 10 banks that they're talking about this. I think that's powerful. Um, the second is, is I think we have to start looking at reputational damage that's associated with it. And this has been going on for a good five years. I've been looking in through the news and seeing different banks in North America, especially Canadian banks, that when scam claims came in, while it made sense to the bank that they weren't taking liability, to the media and to the customer, it didn't. And so we have this problem that we've created about liability and um, zero responsibility. I know my business partner at Omega talks about this a lot, uh, Ben Wallach. You know, I would tell you that, that we talk about just, we've created this, trained ourselves to think about the zero liability. It's not true for scams. The media and the customer don't realize that. They see themselves as being victims. So we have to be mindful of the reputational damage that comes with not paying attention. That's also quantifiable, and it's very easy just a couple Google searches away to see the conversations happening. But, but lastly, I think that there's a good business reason, even before we get to liability shifts. You know, um, at my previous bank, we did a, we did a project where we looked at, um, can we rehabilitate anyone who's um, been a scam victim. This is years ago. We're talking six, seven, eight years, eight years ago. We created a whole program around this. And basically we looked at treating them differently when they had a scam, we identified it as scam. Unless it's rather than saying, Hey, you know, two strikes and you're almost out. Don't do it again. We actually tried to rehabilitate them and have a conversation and educate them. And yes, we found first party abusers for the frauds, you know, people that are on the phone that are worried about that. That does happen. But we actually had a huge success rate on retaining accounts. Because if you think about it, especially these young people that fall victims, they're going to need a car loan. They're going to need a mortgage. And if we start kicking out everybody or don't create a good experience around this for everybody that's in our bank, we're going to run out of customers and we're going to drive them somewhere else that is. And there's some amazing banks that have already put in really healthy programs to protect their customers from scams, to help resolve, to educate them. So I just view that our programs, we need to stop measuring our fraud detection analysts and our investigators on cycle time for scams. We need to change the way we think about managing our detection analysts. We need to be okay. The fact that we're on these calls for 20 minutes versus a one and a half minute, like we have to change our metrics and how we manage it. But I do think that customer retention 
is huge. When we did the pilot, I think we were retaining more customers than at that point the online bank was, or certain parts of the online bank was actually booking. So it can be a huge leaky part of your purse. You hear analogies about money slipping through the hole in your purse. It can be a really, you know, you're trying so hard to get new customers on the front doors, but on the back doors, they're all being victims and your organization might be kicking them out. So I think there's a retention aspect that's really important even before we get into liability, which is coming. I wanted to add another perspective on, you, you mentioned the young customers who are going to, in the future, they're going to take car loans. Youngsters are targeted to be mule accounts. And now it's not just three strikes, you're out because you fell for a scam. It's also your mule account because you fell for a mule scam. And now by AML rules, we have to close this account. So if we could avoid having them fall for scams for the mule schemes, then that's another whole set of customers that financial institutions are able to retain, rehabilitate, educate, and prevent. And then really closing that whole cycle. I love that you brought up the mules because that is something that even before focus on scams, it presents significant uh, regulatory risk. Uh, law enforcement is very interested in it. We didn't talk about Mission Omega, our, our fraud services organization. We will talk about it later. But but we've had clients that help ask us to help them set up anti-scam programs and such. We've had clients that have had significant account takeover and identity theft fraud programs. But actually what's happening is, is while it's significant there, there's multiple, you know, 10 hundreds of times more money going through their accounts as mules. And so we're talking in the terms of tune of you know, hundreds of millions. And so you talk about this mule problem problem is while the, the the institution may not be holding the loss or the liability for that money that's going through, there is an institution that the end institution or the originating institution that will have a problem for these accounts that are in the middle. Um, it's a it's a systemic problem that we have. It's, it's a human problem because those monies are going somewhere where they shouldn't. So I do think the mule implication, um, you know, I think law enforcement's aware of it. I think regulators are aware of it. And so I do think that there is definitely some... Um, uh, problems that money muling presents that we need to start addressing, whether it's, you know, simple things like a sheetman, all kinds of other banking type problems that just exist with money passing through accounts or money just going dead and landing somewhere and not having an entity to resolve it. There's just a lot of problems that it presents. So muling is a, is a very important topic that I think is getting a lot of really good attention lately. Right. So let's transition into Omega Friend Crime, which is recently rebranded to Mission Omega. Tell us a little bit about the organization and also the rebrand. I can tell from my perspective kind of why that's an important to me. What I will tell you is I have an amazing partner, Ben Wallach, who also has been the head of fraud at several financial institutions who joined me on this journey. He's a board member at The Noble. Um, from my perspective, I, I, I was the head of a fraud practice as a partner at one of the big four for a while, and I really enjoyed my time there. I left to focus more on The Noble about a year and a half ago now almost two years ago. And I almost had to shut down the Noble a couple of years ago, multiple times. And I just had a challenge trying to fund it. We were doing so much great work, but just getting the understanding in the industry that um, us being proactive, uh, there was a lot of donations going to survivor organizations, which I love and it needed to go there. But the understanding that banks needed to get involved in use data, it was a, it was a miss. It was hard to find a funding model. And I started thinking if I could just take a fraction of the money that we had earned um, on cons fraud consulting and everything, we could really solve 
evolve and make sustainable this model of the noble. And so one of my goals, that was one of my personal goals for standing up this uh, Mission Omega company with Ben Wallach. So we uh, we do fraud services. We do consulting. We just opened it up operation center. I'll talk about that in here in a second. We do training um, and for fraud training to equip all levels of fraud professionals, kind of take them to the next level operationally. Uh, we have a big partnership we're going to announce here in June about that. And then and then we have, um, uh, we do also placement. So we do placement, really trying to fill the gaps that exist in the industry related to fraud. So again, just huge, passionate fraud fighters is what we are. Our, our fraud consulting team, we have over 450 of years of fraud experience on our team. I think it's almost 30 consultants at this point. It's been amazing. We've only been around for a year, I think last year, 17 different clients. It was just amazing. But I will tell you, the reason we did that is we give 10% of all of our gross revenue to the noble. And that's really helped me solve this problem, really helped. We hired a new executive director of the Roble. Everything comes back to me, that mission of really why I entered and cut my beard and entered, you know, the back into the marketplace is because I really believe in my core. There's more that we could do as financial crime and fraud fighters. So also we do um, Omega Operations. And this is a part I'm really excited about. Um, so, so I was in a, in, a, in a meeting with 24 survivor organizations in Nashville, Tennessee, almost a year ago now. And I was looking at one of the survivors and I said, what can I, or sorry, one of the organizations, I was actually talking to all of them. I asked the organization, I said, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And what one of them said is, Ian, you know what we need? We need jobs. We need good jobs because the survivors are, are finding themselves um, falling back into being exploited. And I started thinking, well, in fraud, we need good people. And so we decided to, we felt like there was a gap in the fraud services world of servicing detection and investigations with just expertise. And I started thinking also, wow, we can also train people and equip people like survivors. And we have a helping hands program that really is trying to equip people to bring great people into fighting fraud because we need good people and we need more of them because this fraud problem is not going down. So I'm hugely excited about what we're doing on Omega Operations. We have a person named Tim Chambers leading it for us. You know, the team we've built has significant amount of fraud fighting experience, but again, it goes mission driven. We're really trying to change the ecosystem of how we work and why we work. And I think that's one of our biggest things on on our rebrand because it was Omega Fin Crime and we actually said, "You know what? We're mission focused. Everything we do is how can we give back? How can we do work differently?" And so our parent company's always been Mission Omega. So all we did is move from our parent company, our LLC name, to make that actually our brand because the entire team is focused on how can we do work differently? How can we rewrite our own stories like I did and Ben has? And how can we actually now come in and solve this fraud fight in an interesting way, help our clients second to none with fraud expertise? I believe that in my core, but also just give back. And so I think one of these lies I let, I know I'm going here, but one of these lies we believed as corporate America people is that we don't have to do good while we work. And I think ESGs really made light of that. And But I think we can do that on an individual basis. And fraud fighters and scam fighters, whether you're getting involved in the noble network, whether you're trying to do something good in your four walls at the, at the bank you're at and inspire people, we have so much opportunity to do good. Whether it's hiring different people or it's training people on human trafficking, that's one of the biggest things I think we haven't realized. And there's been a disservice on the fraud side because we're more than just SAR filers and customer experience balancers and fraud loss meters. Like we are, we are literally like we are empowered people that have an opportunity for huge impact. Absolutely. And we'll definitely add links with all the information on how to sign up and how to join and how to be part of this mission for anyone who, who's listening and would like to be part of it. 
And I particularly like the part that you described with, with uh, Omega Operations because it's, first of all, it's taking care of people who are victims. I'm, I, as you spoke, I thought about the fact that ex-cons have a program to bring them back into society and train them, which is great. But we also need to support the victims of these cases, not just emotional support, but really giving them something. And this gives them education, it gives them expertise, and it gives them purpose. And they already have purpose because they were victims. So they're all the more driven to succeed in their mission. All of us need purpose. All of us need hope. And it's interesting to me, and that's just uniformly as human beings. And once we lose purpose and once we lose hope, we all start spinning. And I think that if we can um, be a part of creating cultures and environments that do that for all of us, of course, with kind of organizations through wonderful organizations like survivor organizations or veterans or all these, I think I think that it changes the landscape. It changes what we do. It changes how we work and why we work. And so you're right. Um, I've learned so much as with the survivor organizations we worked with and building trauma-centric kind of um, constructs. We hope to have our first uh, survivor working with, with us in uh, this quarter. And to go from there, just try to really build out um, a healthy program that can be part of the restorative journey for them and honestly for us as professionals. I think there's a, such an opportunity for all of us to kind of figure out why we do what we do. I mean, Eilid, I know you have a similar story, like why you started this podcast. There's so much that we can do um, when we start understanding that we we can make a difference. Right. And when you work with the victims, it's not just the numbers. It's true empathy that has to be in play there. I wanted to ask you, you're doing a ton. I always ask my guests two questions at the end. One is, what do you think needs to happen to drive real change? But And kind of, you're doing it. You're driving real change. You're bringing people together. You're driving collaboration. And I think you're not kind of asking that hypothetically. You're you're being the the answer to this problem. But I will ask you, what are you hopeful about? It's funny. um, My friend, Matt Friedman, we talked about him at first. He was your first podcast interview. When him and I first started talking three years ago, there was such a desperation, you know, he, he's so much closer to the human trafficking problem that I have. Um, but the landscape then is he was so, there was, he didn't, hadn't seen a lot of progress in a long time. Me as a fraud fighter, career fraud, fraud fighter, it was always a tough conversation on scams. Um, elder exploitation is just one type of human crime that just is a check the box for most institutions. And the child exploitation, we didn't even talk about Project Umbra and the child exploitation that happens and what banks can do. That was just unspoken about. So what am I hopeful about is I think we've gone through a season over the last several years with all of its challenges where we're actually having dialogue and conversations and things that were hidden in dark closets or down dark alleys are exposed now. One of the quotes I remember as a kid from a, a cartoon called G.I. Joe, which I, I'm not even a, mili- like a military person, but there was, it said, you know, knowing is half the battle. And that to me is like, it always sticks with me because you have to shine light into darkness to understand what to deal with. And I feel like now, what am I hopeful about? I'm hopeful that there are over 2,500 financial crime and financial service professionals that have joined the noble to be a part of this solution. I'm hopeful that every week, every other week, I'm having orientation meetings where I speak to these amazing people that are joining in that have passions about one of the human crimes. I'm hopeful that the dialogue around scams right now, and I talk to innovators that are trying to build solutions, that's happening. It never happened before. I'm hopeful that that CEOs are talking about authorized fraud. I'm hopeful that regulators are actually having conversations about liability to actually spur change, which we can argue all day long. Should that be the reason we change? I'd argue no, but it's happening. 
I'm hopeful that I think that I'm seeing momentum across all human crime elements. And it all starts with individuals. It starts with people. It starts with the people that are listening here, deciding to bring what little knowledge and understanding we have to our day job and actually drive change internally. And so I'm unbelievably hopeful. And I think, you know, two years ago, we weren't anything like we are today. And two years from now, it's going to be an amazing world that we get to walk in, especially as fraud fighters, protecting people and being a part of some innovative things going on. Uh, I see a lot around me to be hopeful. So I know that was a long-winded say, but I will tell you I'm hopeful because of people like you and like all the other amazing, noble people I get to deal with and and interact with and, and just all the people through Omega that are joining us and we get to be a part of our clients. We are, we truly are. There is a thread, a big thread of good in our world. And the last thing I'll say is I got done talking at the American Bankers Association not too long ago. And after three sessions talking about one of the worst topics I have to talk about, which is the online sexual exploitation of children. And I was talking about these projects and the cameraman in the back was video. He came to me afterwards and said, Ian, he said, I've been in three sessions now. And he said, bankers with heart. He said, I'm so glad that there are bankers that have a heart. And I think that's what I think we underestimate is that whether we're CEOs or executives or brand new analysts, we have an opportunity to um, bring our heart and our full self to work in this fight. And speaking of bringing one's full self to work, you're also a singer-songwriter. And how does that passion to music fold in with everything that you do? I have been writing and recording music for 30 years, and it has not all been good music. Um, when I was at Ally, when I wasn't in China or Brazil or somewhere, I'd be touring in a little van in the, in the weekends. My poor wife and kids would put up with me as I went and did this event or that event. So music's been a part of my life the whole time, but I always kept it separate. You know, I always thought that I needed to be Ian the songwriter and the singer and Ian the fraud professional. And now I've realized, and maybe it's just because of where I am in my career, that you know what, I need to be Ian in all circumstances. And I think that's, again, one of those lies we believed is, is that we need to be two people sometimes. Um, I write a lot of song about fighting fraud, living a life of purpose, all kinds of things like that. I wrote a song for a TikTok campaign on security. Um, I will tell you, um, I think what we need to do is make sure that whether we're artists or writers or musicians or poets or I mean, every creative, uh, Brad Hockey over at Fifth Third does a great job. Bring your talents, all of yourself to this fight because I think that's what makes everything interesting. I think that's what really creates inspiration and innovation. So I just encourage anybody out there that has some sort of talent that they've been keeping separate, try to find a way to bring that into work. And I really like what you said with bringing your heart to work because everyone has a heart, right? And I'm sure bank executives are really, in a way, looking at the numbers because that's what they're measured on, that's what they're expected. They have boards, they have pressures. But I also think we're in an era where it's okay to be your whole self, just like you described now. So I definitely encourage everyone to think beyond the metrics, think beyond the numbers and the pressures and stand up for what you believe in. That's right. You're a thousand percent. And I honestly don't think we need to be experts in the field. I learned that two and a half years ago when I knew nothing about trafficking and I started doing something. Just bring the things you're passionate about to work and we're going to be a better society and we're going to be, I think that's one of the biggest things um, that we've kind of had this lack. Um, of course, do it professionally. There's ways to do it in a way that you know is respectful and all these things that we need to do as human beings and in a culture. But I think it's it's wonderful. It makes for interesting conversations. Last thing I'll say is I've talked to thousands of C-suite executives about this human crime fight. 
In the thousands of conversations, C-suites and other types of executives, I've only had one ever look at me after I share this story and say, I never want to hear that again. Only one. And I remember that. And I remember that where I was, I remember the conversation that easy to focus on that one. But I will tell you that the thousands others, some are involved in the noble, some are just, you know, hey, I love what you're doing. Get my team involved, all these kind of things. Most of those people are at your institutions. And again, like you said, everyone has a heart, everyone is a person. So I think if you can find a way to communicate in their language and know that they're also a human, find a way to have this dialogue, I think is, um, is the way that we're going to make progress. Everyone wants to do good. Everyone wants to have this hope and purpose. We just need to retrain our thinking and our speaking about it. Ian, thank you for joining the podcast. It was a pleasure to have you on, and I can't wait to speak again. Pilot, thank you for what you're doing for the industry, raising awareness, and thank you for everyone that joined us for this session. This is the way we do it. We do it together. And so your platforms and platforms like this is the way we're going to make true progress. So thank you for what you're doing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Scam Rangers. For more information and updates on fighting online scams, follow me on LinkedIn, Ayelet Bigger Levine.